Welcome to the Open Metaverse Podcast. I'm your host, Mehdi Farooq, Senior Tokenomics Analyst at Animoca Brands. With me today, I have a special guest, Stephen McQuinn, who is a partner at Collab Currency and Associate Professor of Finance at University of Oregon. Uh, so, Steve, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Steve, uh, I can't wait to chat with you with regards to Web3. But before I do that, I am very intrigued by your background. So I want to explore that. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, what's your crypto origin story? And also your inspiration behind uh, starting the fund, Collab Currency. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how far back to start. I, I started my career in tech back in the dot-com kind of boom, just to date myself a little bit. Uh, I think just fast forwarding, eventually, you know, went back to school, got a PhD in finance, started as a finance professor at University of Oregon a little over a decade ago. And in about 20, I want to say 16 or 17 uh, so in the meantime, I had started a software company and we grew it up and we sold it to Verizon. And I was kind of thinking about what to do next. This was probably 2015 when I ended up leaving Skyward. And, you know, I looked around and I said, well, I want to do something at the intersection of emerging tech and finance. And Bitcoin was sort of like the obvious thing. And so started just diving in, learning everything I could. I was cold emailing people, just trying to get connected. Eventually I got connected to a guy named Chris Berniski, who was at ARC with Kathy Wood at the time. He was writing a book uh, and I was sort of like reading that chapter by chapter as he was sending it to me. And that's really what took me down the rabbit hole. So that was kind of like the origin story on how I got into crypto initially. Um, then another year or two later, an old friend of mine who started a fund called Collaborative Fund, which is a New York-based venture investor, sort of traditional Web2 venture investor that does uh, food and clean energy and uh, consumer tech and has been around maybe 13 years. Uh, he called me up and he said, hey, we're seeing deal flow around crypto as well. And I had started teaching it and researching it at the university. I was one of the first finance professors to do so. And he said, would you help us figure this out? And I said, sure. And so we invested out of the main fund at Collaborative uh, for a year or two. And then by, I would say, late 2018, it became clear that the space was expanding. It was not going away. And we really needed like a full-time effort around it. And so that was really the birth of Collab Currency is it was an outgrowth of Collaborative Fund where we said, let's build a separate pool of capital, a separate team, and let's just like really lean into this uh, with some folks that are thinking about it sort of 24 seven. Yeah, that's that's a great background. Uh, so whilst I was researching uh, about, about your fund, I kind of noticed that you guys were quite early when it came to the NFT trend. Uh, so just wanted to pick your brain, like how, like what was the trend then, like maybe 2018, 2019, how, how come you guys were able to pick on that? What was the thesis then? And how has it evolved when it comes to NFT from then to now? And I know across your portfolio, you have your invested in NFT across different verticals. So also would love to explore that thesis across different verticals when it comes to NFTs. Yeah, happy to, to chat through that. Um, I think that, you know, when we started the fund, we were sort of generalists. I mean, I was coming at it as a finance professor. Actually, there was an article that was just published by Matt Levine yesterday. Uh, it's huge. It's like 40,000 words or something like that. And it, it's great. It's a very sober take on sort of like an intro to crypto. It's not a hit piece. Uh, it's not a love letter either. I think he tries to take a very balanced view. But he says something in there that was that really resonated with me. It was like, I don't, I'm going to not get the quote exactly right. But it was something like, if you like finance and you like sort of the structures around how people organize economic reality, then crypto is amazing because it's like a laboratory for, for financial intuitions. And that's really how I came to the space, right? I was a finance professor. I've been thinking about securities. I've been thinking about, you know, this idea of crypto as a recording format. And that's where, where we started with fund one. We did equity deals. We did DeFi. We did layer ones, we did interoperability, and it was really towards the end of fund one, we had now spun out of collaborative fund at this point, uh, and I brought on a second partner, a guy named Derek Schloss, and who's an old friend of mine, I'd already been trading ideas with him for years. And 
I think the, you know, the first NFT related deal we did was Rainbow Wallet, uh, which was probably back in about 2019, we did that deal. And they were, you know, NFTs obviously were very early back then. They were thinking like people are going to want a way to collect these, to display them. Um, and so that was really where we started thinking about NFTs, but it was really the super rare deal that I would say changed the trajectory of the fund. So we leaned in like very heavily on super rare, tried to understand, you know, why art would accrue value in this format. Eventually ended up doing that deal with one confirmation and it really changed our thinking. It was like, wow, this is where the space is headed. It's headed towards this intersection of consumer products and Web3. And let's do more of this. And Derek had become close with Eric from Artblocks when Artblocks was very early. So we ended up leading that round. Then we ended up getting into Axie Infinity very early because we had a thesis around gaming. And sort of like after those three deals, we started to become known as like the fund that kind of understood NFTs and understood the consumer side. And so in fund two, we just completely leaned into it and just decided this is going to be our brand. Almost everything we did in fund two was consumer related. Uh, most of that has an NFT component. We don't think of ourselves as an NFT fund because we view NFTs as just a recording format. It's a standardized way to record unique digital objects of which the world is is full of unique objects uh, that could be recorded digitally. And so it just, I think, is inevitable that most consumer products have an NFT angle. Uh, but really, we think of ourselves as sort of like consumer first. Got it. Uh, you did mention a few projects uh, specific to NFT marketplaces like Super Air, Art Blogs, and then XC, XC Infinity, which also has a marketplace when it comes to NFTs. So uh, apart from that, like, what are some of the recent NFT investments you have done or, or consumer investments you have done pertaining to NFTs that you're very excited about that that could be very disruptive going forward? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it might be helpful to kind of like frame the way we're thinking about NFTs and then kind of like dive into a couple specific projects. So as I mentioned, we view NFTs as a recording format, right? So that's going to apply to everything because like, anything that needs to be recorded of which, I mean, virtually everything needs to be recorded, right? So like money is effectively, a, you know, uses a recording format, like financial contracts use a recording format. And like every mortgage in the world is unique. Every insurance policy in the world is unique. Every employment agreement is unique. These are all unique items that are recorded digitally. And ultimately we believe will be recorded as NFTs, uh, as everything sort of comes onto this standardized format. And so that's the way we look at it is like, there are these many different verticals, which we can dive into, but ultimately they're all basically just using the standardized recording format, which is why this is so powerful. Uh, I mean, even access control, right? So like usernames and passwords basically have to use a, re uh, a digital recording format. So then if you dive into like some of the projects, so like, let's just take that last one, access control. You know, we've long believed that usernames and passwords are not a great way to do access control. They get shared, they get stolen. You know, you can look at like many examples. We've always felt like that's going to be a token-based model in the end, that basically you'll go to a site, you'll connect wallet, and then what's in that wallet is the thing that will provide access control into anything. It could be the New York Times, it could be Netflix, it could be a financial institution, It'll be a function of the assets in your wallet that that basically um, procure the access to that site. And so we've been thinking about that since I think Derek and I were writing about that concept back in 2018. We've seen lots of projects kind of like dancing around the edges of this idea of access control. And then we came across Lit Protocol. We were just enamored uh, with David and Chris, the founders. We really liked their model. It was a network model. Uh, and so we ended up leading that first round for, for Lit. Uh, they built the product. They got it off and running. They got, you know, 20 integrations probably just right out of the gate. People are now integrating it. It's totally permissionless. So you don't even need to interact with the Lit team in order to, to integrate Lit. So it's, it's fun because sometimes we'll see new integrations that sort of nobody even, even knew about. And now they've expanded uh, beyond access control to something like um, programmable uh, key pairs. And so 
I won't dive into the deep, the, the weeds there, but like, it's basically going to allow for account abstraction, which is this idea that, you know, if you think about the way we operate in crypto today, it's actually crazy, right? It's like, we have this wallet, it's got all our stuff in it. And then we're signing transactions with the same wallet. It would be like, if I had to take my life savings to 7-Eleven to buy a candy bar, right? Like you would never do that because maybe something happens to your life savings along the way. Uh, maybe they get stolen or whatever. And so, I mean, I think we've long believed that eventually there will be accounts, um, wallets or contracts where you're keeping all of your items, but you'll actually be doing the transactions with sort of like an abstracted wallet. So Lit is starting to address that now. So we're, we're super excited about um, Lit and what they're doing. And the way this fits into consumers, our view is like what Lit's building is not purely a consumer product. Most consumers will probably have never heard of Lit, but what it's doing is it's enabling all kinds of consumer use cases around access to content and being able to, you know, sign transactions in a way that's safe and will it will feel sort of more comfortable for consumers. Steve, can you give like a few examples just to like take take a step back, like a few examples where Lit protocol can be very useful from a consumer standpoint? Sure. So like, I think one integration recently was with Seed Club, right? So Seed Club wanted to do a merch drop. They wanted to make sure that the people who held Seed Club tokens were the ones that had access to buy the merch. And so that was Lit operating in the background where you went into the Seed Club website, you click connect. Lit was basically checking the contents of that wallet and then applying a discount or, you know, whatever sort of like features they wanted to provide to various levels of, of holdings. And, but the thing is like, it can basically be applied to anything. You could think of it as like anything where historically you've used a, a username and password, you could basically use Lit's technology to generate that access based on the contents of a wallet, which could be what's in the wallet. It could also be actions the wallet has taken, right? So you actually can get quite complex in what constitutes access control. It could be Anybody who's done over 100 transactions on Uniswap now gets access to, you know, maybe something related to Uniswap or, or something else around trading. So, uh, so yeah, the, the applications are actually quite broad. So, so, Steve, like, do you think soulbound tokens can come into that foray as well, like when it comes to access control, especially when, they remove, when we remove the transferability function, then it, it can have powerful access control features when it comes to either reputation or identity, like you can unlock things. One example you gave of Uniswap, I've seen some protocol kind of allowing one to make digital CVs with regards to actions you have done in, in Web3, and that gives you badges and that badges conditionally can unlock certain things in, in Web3. How are you thinking about that? Uh, we're into it. And in fact, that company is another one of our portfolio companies. It's called Nukes, N-O-O-X. And you can basically go in and based on certain actions your wallet has taken in the past or various holdings, you can mint a soul a soulbound badge that could then, as you described, be used inside the lit protocol to generate access control to sort of like something else. And so it's actually like many times when we're investing, we're not only thinking about like, is this uh, you know, a project that can generate sort of like a unicorn, but also how does this fit in with other things we've invested in? And when we looked at nukes, we were like, all right, Soulbond badges are fascinating in their own right, but also like this feeds right into this concept of access control and identity and sort of like these other things that we are thinking about. And so um, another good example, just to, you were asking about sort of like other, other investments we've made, one is uh, Mona. So Mona is an open metaverse. I can tell you that on our team, we've always felt like we the, the um, limited supply metaverses have never really resonated with us. This would be like Decentraland and Sandbox and many of these others where land is scarce. We've always thought that these immersive digital environments are going to be um, like unconstrained with regards to supply. And so the idea is it's kind of like websites, right? Like there is no limit on the number of websites that can be created. However, a website only becomes valuable if you put something on it that people actually want. And so our view is the metaverse is gonna be the same way. Like there shouldn't be any limit to the number of immersive spaces 
that can be created, but the ones that put something compelling on it, maybe it's like a live music venue, maybe it's a game, maybe it's sort of like anything you could imagine, a, a meeting space for a certain community. Those are the ones that are going to accrue more value because they're actually capturing the scarce resource, which is consumer attention. And so Mona, when we saw Mona, it, it fit right into this concept. It's an open metaverse. There's no limit to the number of spaces that can be created. Eventually, these spaces will all be stitched together. And we did Mona. Uh, and then immediately, we connected some of our other projects to start building in Mona. And then Mona introduced us to Ready Player Me, which does infrastructure for avatars. Uh, we then invested in Ready Player Me. And so, uh, again, it's kind of like, you know, we're trying to craft the portfolio in a very symbiotic way, as opposed to making a bunch of individual investments. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Uh, I'm, I'm very fascinated by Mona as well, like having metaverses as NFTs is intriguing. Um, you did mention Bona, which also has a marketplace. Like you can like buy, sell metaverses as NFTs. You also mentioned a few other NFT marketplaces in, in, in your portfolio. One trend we are seeing across the market is, is the debate regarding royalty fees. Uh, there are certain, certain um, marketplaces that, that have now tried to enforce or, or go towards a direction of 0% royalty fees. So what's your, what's your take on that? Uh, what will happen in medium run? What will happen in long run? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think it was inevitable, right? Like these fees were collected and routed voluntarily by the marketplaces. I think there's two approaches. One is try to create some sort of technical approach, right? Where the fees are sort of collected in a more automated way. That's actually difficult for a variety of reasons. We probably don't have to dive into the weeds on that one, but like one option would be some sort of technological approach where it's it's uh, requiring the fee to be paid as a function of transfer. Um, I think that's going to be tough. And so I think the more viable approach is that it's going to be incumbent upon the projects to create value for those who are paying the fee. Right. So if you think about like the Web2 models, which are largely subscription models, like you only get access to this thing if you pay the subscription fee, because the subscription fee is what generates revenue for the team to be able to actually produce the thing you're trying to get access to. I think with NFTs, it's going to be the same. Right. So if it's a metaverse plot and you're not paying the fee, it might be the case that you can't stitch that together with some of the other metaverse plots. If it's like a PFP and you buy that thing without paying the fee, it might be that you don't get access to some of the community features that those who have paid the fee that, uh, get access to because you're not contributing revenue to the folks that are actually producing that stuff that you might want access to. So I think we're going to end up with this model where NFTs can, can trade for effectively zero royalty. I think we're also going to see many of these projects spinning up their own marketplaces. I think marketplaces are increasingly going to be verticalized, uh, which will push a lot of the transactions up to the aggregator level. Um, so I don't, I think it's going to be tough to get around the zero fee paradigm from a purely technical standpoint. I think it's also going to have to be sort of like people choose to pay the fees because they want access to something that the team is producing. Okay. So, so market can get verticalized on a smart contract level. We can have this functionality where um, projects can kind of create which marketplaces these NFTs can get listed. And then another alternative would be where let's say a buyer can also pay tip like in, in on a voluntary basis. So all of these three options in, 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 in kind of like a combination will be will be applied. Yeah, that makes sense. I, like I do feel verticalized marketplaces is also my thesis, even though there is a trade-off with, with regards to user, like uh, UI UX, uh, that there's a lot of work involved there. But uh, again, when you think about value accrual, it, it also makes sense. You, you get you get hold of more value when it comes to accruing it. Um, so, so Steve, you did mention that, that you, you guys are also investing in Web3 gaming. Uh, how has that thesis changed? What is your current a thesis on Web3 Gaming, how would this space space involved? 
Yeah, so our first gaming investment was Sky Mavis, uh, the producer behind Axie Infinity. Uh, we invested when it was much smaller, I think uh, under 100,000 uh, daily active users, but there, there was clearly some activity. They hadn't launched Ronin yet, so they were in a high-fee environment. And then the thesis was, if they can move this thing to a low-fee environment, uh, we're going to see usage explode, which is exactly what happened. So I've been serving on the board uh, as an observer at Sky Mavis um, for some time now. So I've kind of like watched uh, the things that worked well, the things that were challenges. And we sort of brought what we learned around Axie Infinity to sort of like our lens on how should we be investing in gaming broadly. I mean, the fascinating thing about gaming, I don't know if you know the origin story of Ethereum, but really... I mean, this whole thing started effectively because of a gaming event. So back in, I don't even know what year, but I want to say maybe like 2010, uh, Vitalik, young Vitalik, was playing World of Warcraft, and Blizzard effectively nerfed his character by changing some of the parameters around, around damage and whatnot. And, you know, he had put all this work and time into, into the character, and just felt destroyed by it. This is at least the story. I've not validated this with Vitalik personally, but the story goes that basically it was this, this episode of his character getting nerfed that led him to start thinking about platforms that were immutable, where there wasn't a third party that could unilaterally sort of like make alterations uh, that have like a negative effect on the user, which eventually led him to Bitcoin and then eventually led him to, to start Ethereum. So if you think about the fact that like kind of everything they were doing today uh, traces back, uh, at least in part, to this, this event around a gaming ecosystem, it makes perfect sense that like gaming is going to be a huge part of the way we see this, this uh, ecosystem develop. And so we, I think we've long been convinced of that. And so... You know, we, I'll just point to a couple games um, that we're sort of fascinated by. We, we've invested in gaming infrastructure. We've invested in games themselves. I think we like things that look kind of like platform plays or things that could expand to pretty substantial scope. So I think the very most recent gaming deal we did was Internet Game. I don't know if you've had a chance yeah, to, to I, play I, I love the meta internet. games. Like, yeah. like it's, it also kind of captured towards the interoperability of different communities. I, I love that idea. If you're NFT holder of Board ABR Club or CryptoPunks, you can participate in these games. So I really like the idea. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, it's, it's like a unique... So I think just for the audience, if they haven't heard of Internet Game, um, basically the idea is you buy a ticket. The ticket is in the form of an NFT. You then play a series of mini games. You there's a leaderboard. You advance. You eventually start playing kind of like um, multiplayer games, like a Mario Kart type of a thing. And then like eventually somebody wins, and then there's all these prizes. So you could buy a ticket for I don't know hundred bucks uh, and and win say a board ape, which is maybe worth a hundred thousand bucks, right? So there's the prospect of sort of substantial return, but it's also just fun. Like it's fun. Our whole team at Collab Currency was playing internet game. We were all like comparing our scores. None of us were really good enough to get up at the top of the, the overall leaderboard, but we were able to compare scores uh, with each other, right? It was almost like we had our own little mini game kind of within the larger game. And I think, look, that was just season two. Like this is just the beginning for an internet game. I think like this idea of gamifying kind of community engagement is just at the very beginning. And so I'm super excited to see where that goes. And the thing about crypto is like, it just makes the inflows and the outflows of value very seamless. Like think about how hard it would be to actually produce internet game without crypto. So like the games themselves aren't on chain, right? They're just regular games that you go on and play, but the flow of value in and the flow of value out is actually very hard to replicate. Like, how are you going to push value out to people in, say, a hundred different countries and, you know, take in value from people in a hundred different countries, maybe that have different types of banking systems and different types of, like, electronic payment mechanisms and, like, it would really be crazy. So you almost need everything to be on the standardized format uh, in order to make the value flow seamless. So 
we loved it from that standpoint in the sense that like the games, anybody can play. You don't need to be a crypto expert. My mom could play internet game, right? It was like, just like, you know, moving little dots around and sort of like fun little mini games like you might see in many types of casual gaming environments. Um, but the flowment of payments in and out is what made the thing genuinely Web3 native, uh, which we thought was like a really cool um, innovation. So very excited about this internet game. They're about to do another one called Saw. Uh, I just bought my tickets yesterday. So so we'll see. Um, another quick game I'll mention that our whole team has been playing is uh, VBA, Virtual Basketball Association. So we invested in this one maybe six to 12 months ago. I think many people on our team were all sort of gamers to some degree. Uh, I've always been very into sort of like fantasy sports, right? Like fantasy football, fantasy basketball, fantasy hockey, sort of like all these things. And we've always thought like, is there some way to replicate kind of, I think like Zed Run was actually very eye-opening for us. It's like, wow, we can kind of simulate the same feel, the same vibe as horse racing, but like in a purely digital environment. But you get kind of like the same rush when you're watching the, the horses run. We thought like, what else might that be applied to where you could basically like simulate the action in a way that replicated you know, these behaviors from sort of off chain. So when we came across VBA, it was clear. It was like, wow, this is amazing because it's like virtual basketball, but you kind of own the characters, right? Like the characters are all NFTs. You own them. You can sell them. You can trade them. The players don't get injured. The season never ends. Like, you know, in regular fantasy basketball, like you play your season and then like it's nothing for however many months, right? Like, VBA has no end date. Like you can just keep running this thing perpetually. Uh, you can play as many matches as you want. Uh, it's it's amazing. And so like our whole team has like got players. We're we're playing teams from other funds and talking trash, and uh, that's been super fun. So that's another one that um, again, it's just like it's something that NFTs actually make it better. Like the, I would say the types of gaming investments we're not attracted to are where it's a game where they're just sort of slapping an NFT on it, but the NFT doesn't really make sense or it doesn't like alter the gameplay or it doesn't like enhance the game in any way. The things that are most interesting to us is like, wow, this is something that would be very difficult to do without NFTs. And so NFTs are really like enabling features that are very difficult to deliver in, in other ways. So I'll definitely check VB out. I'm, I'm excited about that now. So I'll go and check that out. Um, Terrific. You did mention uh, Vitalik and his, his quest with World of Warcraft. What's interesting is in World of Warcraft, uh, there was like soulbound items. And now we have soulbound tokens. So, so from that standpoint, it's also interesting. I think every, like the whole crypto origin story coming from World of Warcraft is, 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 is something. You know, the only thing I would just add on that real quickly is like it's a people who've been in gaming environments have understood the value of digital items long before crypto. And it's amazing how many people have come out, like Brock Pierce was basically like involved in gaming marketplaces, like prior to crypto, like Vitalik was involved in gaming. Like I think people who inna like innately are gamers and kind of understand the value of digital objects sort of like took to crypto and to NFT specifically sort of more readily uh, than other sort of parts of the general public. And so it's not surprising that there's sort of like all this crossover. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even when I when I joined crypto, when I saw a lot of NFTs going up in value, half a mil, $250,000, to me, those those things make sense because in, in games like Fortnite, some of the rare skins can go up in value because there's a culture involved, there's a community involved, there's that feeling of accomplishment and achievement and, and collectability. Uh, so from, even from that standpoint, all of that made sense uh, to me. Um, so with internet games, what was fascinating was interoperability of community. Uh, so I, I saw your portfolio. You have few investments when it also comes to interoperability of ecosystem, XLR being one of them. So what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I know it's like a holy grail for crypto, like having cross-chain communication, having cross-chain mobility of asset between metaverses and things like that. So what are your thoughts on that? And what are some of the recent investments you guys have made apart from XLR? 
Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, at the end of the day, if we want this to be a standardized recording format, we're going to need to find a way to move assets and messages across chains. Like, it's just that simple. I think at the end of the day, like a lot of this is going to be abstracted from the end consumer, uh, where they're not even going to necessarily know whether this is being delivered on Ethereum or Solana or some other chain. They're really going to be much more interested in the features um, than the under the under the plumbing, so to speak. Um, that won't be true of all assets. Like some of them, we're really going to want the highest security guarantees, or we're going to want the lowest fees, or the, the sort of like features of these different chains that people will want. But absolutely critical to be able to move things across chains. So Axler, I actually wrote an article. Um, kind of like summarizing some thoughts on Axler. It's on Medium. If you go to Medium and just search Collab Currency, you'll find our page. Um, and, you know, we liked Axler because it's more of a fabric than a bridge. Uh, they're actually going to be putting on a conference down in Miami, I believe. Uh, I don't have the dates right in front of me. I think it might be next February. Um, but it's going to be sort of like a cross-chain conference. It's going to dive into a lot of these topics. And so I'm looking forward to attending that. I think, um, yeah, I mean, the bridges obviously have been tough this year with from the standpoint of security. We've seen lots of exploits on bridges. Uh, and so I think there's still there's still work to do. But if you, I guess like just to take one idea from the article, you know, right now you and I are on different networks, right? Like our ISPs are sort of like independent, like the, the, the ISP providing your internet access and my internet access are, are different. The reason we can talk to each other and have this call right now is because of an overlay network called Akamai. I mean, consumers generally haven't heard of Akamai, uh, but it's critical, right? It's actually the fabric that sort of like stitches all of these ISPs together and allows content to be delivered across these different networks. The internet is basically a network of networks. And so we see a similar paradigm happening in crypto. And I think Axler is one of the best positioned. Uh, we're going to see these overlay networks. Ceramic is another one where I would describe Ceramic as sort of like an overlay network where many different chains will be plugging into this overlay chain uh, for a particular feature or, or attribute or something that they're trying to, to achieve. And so um, I would say we're very bullish on the concept of overlay networks. I don't think we've seen the end of them. And so it's, uh, yeah, continues to be an active space that we're, we're looking at. Yeah, you, men you mentioned Ceramic. If I remember correctly, it's, it's more like an interoperability network for Web3 uh, identity and social. Is, is, is that correct? Like composing your identity. That's network. right. Yeah, so it's quite, it's quite a flexible system. I would say digital IDs are a big piece of it. Um, we've long believed that identity is the biggest unlock in, in Web3, potentially. It solves a lot of issues around regulatory things. It solves a lot of things around reputation, which can lead to like lending that's under-collateralized or uncollateralized. Like uh, Identity is just such a missing link. Uh, so ceramic has been very exciting to kind of like watch that unfold. You know, Derek and I both came out of sort of like the security token space. So I mentioned you like, so originally I was a professor. And then when I first got into crypto, I'd been studying securities for so many years. The initial thought was obviously like, oh, how can this thing that I've now just discovered improve securities, which I've been studying for the last decade, right? And so we got very interested in this idea of real world assets on chain Securities on chain, stocks, bonds, real estate, that type of thing. The big, one of the big issues was always identity, right? Like how do you ensure that the person operating this wallet is accredited or located in a specific jurisdiction or sort of like whatever the attributes you would need to verify in order to facilitate regulated trade. And so we've been thinking about identity since literally the earliest days we got into the space. And so I suspect that we are going to continue investing around that theme because I think it's it's a really difficult problem to solve, but I think it's such an important one. So, so you reckon uh, the securitization thesis, once the identity problem is to a certain degree solved, we'll start seeing more application and more real-world securities coming on blockchain, which could potentially unlock trillions of dollars of value? Like, is that is that how you're envisioning it? 
Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I've been sort of like proselytizing this concept of security tokens since like 2017 and it's, it's now 2022. Right. And, and clearly it has not taken off uh, the way we would have hoped. I still believe the real world assets might be a big component of the next cycle because I think we're now, the problem early on was that you could tokenize an ownership claim on an asset, but you kind of didn't have any of the infrastructure. You didn't have crypto-based transfer agents. You didn't have trading venues that could touch securities. You didn't have custody that could handle securities. You kind of didn't have all the stuff that you need for that ecosystem to flourish. I've continued to believe that crypto is probably the best recording format for all of our securitized assets, uh, like stocks and bonds and real estate. I don't think that's ever ceased to be true. I think what's been missing is the infrastructure, but you've got a lot of folks like Securitize and Vertalo that have been like plugging along, continuing to make progress. I think Securitize just announced they're going to tokenize a portion of a KKR fund. It's private equity. Like there continues to be some news and like it is eventually going to get unlocked, but there's just a lot of regulatory and sort of like incumbent friction uh, that needs to be resolved. But um, I'm still pretty convinced it's going to happen. Exciting times ahead. Um... So, so one thing one thing we are seeing in the in, in the market is when you when you kind of see hackathons, there's a lot of activity when it comes to Web three social. A lot of submissions are, are are around Web three social. So how are you thinking about that? I, I know it's like a second order effect of identity, uh, but how are you guys playing that? How are you guys thinking about Web three? Yeah, I would say we have a bunch of projects that are building at the social layer. Um, I think of things like Gallery and DECA that are kind of building around the social layer of NFTs. We've got a project called GM.XYZ that's building more sort of like a, you know, more like a social network. Uh, I think there's going to continue to be a lot of action around this space. Again, reputation identity, like, it, it, like mo many of these things, like it always comes back to reputation and identity. Uh, and so, again, it feels like very early days for these things, but... If I were to bet, like, is there going to be a huge breakout at that intersection? I would bet yes. Uh, and I think it's not going to be tomorrow. We're still, you know, if I go back to what were the things that broke out in sort of like 2021, right? Like when everything was sort of going crazy and was frenetic. In many cases, it was like stuff that was originally built back in like 2018, 2019, right? That took some time to kind of like grow and incubate and evolve. And so it, it does feel like we're back in that period of 2019 right now where like asset prices are down, things are a little more chill, people can take a breath, people can build. And I think it is going to be the things that are built over this period, late 2022, all through 2023, that are going to generate the breakouts in 2024 and 2025. So I think it's like an amazing time to be a builder. It's an amazing time to be an investor. And I can't wait to watch all this stuff evolve. Absolutely. Uh, so I know, Steve, you're also part of your DAOs. Uh, so I would look to also explore that. Like, what are some of the DAOs you're part of or, or DAOs you recommend uh, for audience to join? Yeah, I mean, so many. I'm not sure I can even name all of them. I think we're probably the most active DAO investor in the world, at least by number of DAOs, for, for at least with regards to funds. So... Derek and I were very early in the Lao and Flamingo. And so that was kind of like what spawned this Tribute Labs ecosystem. So out of those two spun Neon Dow, Red Dow, Noise Dow, um, what else? Coco, uh, Unicorn Dow. So like there's been all these Dows that have flourished inside of the, the Tribute Labs ecosystem. We've joined most of them. Uh, we've also joined Alliance DAO. Uh, I've known Imran over there for many years. I think that's just an amazing ecosystem. We're in Seed Club. Uh, we're about to do Hydra, uh, which is going to be almost like a DAO of DAOs, uh, which will be sort of fascinating. We're doing that one with 1KX and a bunch of others, Meta Cartel. Is it ventures. like funds of funds? It's kind of like you could think of it as like an incubator for DAOs. Right. And it's very early, like it's not even launched yet. So uh, it's still like TBD. Exactly. That's the fun thing about DAOs, right? Is like they evolve according to 
the interests uh, and the desires of the members. So all of these things are are kind of fluid to some degree. So yeah, I mean, I can't say enough about the Tribute Lab ecosystem, the, really all of those, right? I think Seed Club is a fascinating one to join uh, for your members. The Alliance ecosystem is great. Um, they're, they're also incubating a lot of the kind of like new projects that are going to be building the next generation of stuff in this space. And so it's very fun for me as, as an investor and just an observer to kind of like see, you know, see what people are, uh, what's catching people's attention. What are people building? What's the newest thing? So, um, anyway, those are the ones we participate in and, um, yeah, have been thrilled about all of them. It's like, you kind of become friends, especially in these smaller DAOs where they're like 50, 60, 70 people. Um, you get to know the other active participants very well. And we're all going to meet up in Marfa in a few weeks in Texas. Uh, it's uh, It actually generates like real friendships because of a function of how closely you're working with everybody in the DAO. Yeah, absolutely. So like one of my ideas and thesis is that some of the services DAO will, will replace service providers. So just thinking about that, like I, I know you mentioned some investment DAOs uh, and even some incubation DAOs. So do you think in next 10 years, maybe perhaps 15 years, a lot of these DAOs will replace Web3 VC? So kind of, do you kind of like feel like with Collab Currency, do you kind of feel threatened that, okay, DAOs, investment DAOs might perhaps disrupt uh, venture investing or Web3 VC places? It's a great question. It's a very controversial question, right? Because I think different people have different views on this. I'll tell so. I straddle both sides, right? So I'm a partner at this fund, uh, which is sort of traditional VC model. Uh, and then we're members of maybe a dozen investment DAOs. And so I've kind of seen what each side is good at. So let me kind of describe what I think each side excels at, which then kind of like paints the picture for like how this might evolve. DAOs are amazing because you get like a hive mind in a way that you just don't get at a fund, right? So our fund has two partners, three other members of the investment team, kind of the five of us are doing all the stuff. We're sourcing deals, we're debating deals, we're investing in deals, we're working with the teams afterwards. It's not the same as like when we go into Flamingo and there's 20 or 30 or 40 people that are bringing interesting things they've seen over the past week into the conversation. It's just like, just as a function of kind of more active participants, you get a more vibrant discussion, I would say, around each project. You also get more resources to tap into, right? So for the project post-investment, if they need an intro to whomever and they ask the DAO, like it's pretty likely that like across the 60 members of Flamingo, like somebody's connected to almost everybody in Web3. Right. So you get this like incredible network with a DAO that's like very difficult for a traditional VC to replicate. Um, capital formation in DAOs can happen very quickly. Many of these DAOs like raise all the capital in the span of 24 hours, sometimes in the span of minutes. Uh, and so, you know, we saw what happened with Constitution DAO. Like it's incredible how fast capital can can be aggregated in, in the DAO context. Now. On the fund side, I would say the things that the fund excels at is digging deeply, right? So I would say funds might be better at like very deep diligence on a project. They also might be better, like think like, so I'm, we mentioned Lit earlier, like we invested in Lit and then we did a call every week with Lit for months and months and months, right? And like, we were fascinated by the project uh, they wanted feedback. They were iterating very quickly. Like we had this very close relationship where we dedicated a lot of hours to trying to like help them succeed in whatever way we could. I think you don't really get that as much with DAOs, right? Because like each individual member doesn't really have a big enough stake. Like for us, the partners at the fund, like it's our job, right? To like make sure that these, these projects succeed to like, to the extent we can. I think in DAOs, it's kind of nobody's job, so to speak, right? Like everybody's participating, but nobody's participating maybe as deeply as the way like a professional investor would. And so the strongest rounds that we've seen have both. So like maybe Collab leads a round, but then brings in a bunch of these DAOs as kind of like part of the syndicate 
to us, those are the strongest investment round because you get both. You get like a very dedicated partner that's going to put in however much effort is required, but you also get to tap into this incredible network that the DAOs provide um, and this sort of like hive mind, which is a really powerful thing. And so I don't think it's a matter of like one replacing the other. I think we're going to continue to see more investment DAOs because I think it's become like a very powerful way to invest. Uh, and yeah, I mean, over time, I think we'll see more and more rounds that are both, you know, professional funds, some DAOs, and then some angels. That seems to be like the common construct of rounds we've been doing recently. That also makes sense. Do you think in the future, apart from the investment DAO, service DAOs can also become part of the equation? So for example, um, in terms of value add, uh, perhaps a project wants more value add and they maybe target specific services, let's say maybe uh, a DAO specific to podcasting or marketing or smart contract auditing. Do you think that can also happen where within a cap table you have VCs, you have investment DAOs, and then you also have service DAOs? Is that, is that something that can also potentially happen? A hundred percent. Like it's actually already in the works. I, I don't know if it's been announced, so I don't want to say anything specifically, but you're going to see service DAOs or guilds sometimes is what they're referred to. You're going to see those form around marketing expertise, around legal expertise, around kind of like all of these different types of professional services. I think you're going to see DAO equivalents to many of them. It's going to allow sort of like freelancers to earn an income uh, by being part of this collective as opposed to part of a firm. And so I'm fascinated to watch it. There's a lot of coordination that's involved, right? So it's a little like, it's a tricky, it's kind of a tricky thing. Uh, but I think you're going to see these things get off the ground like very soon, like in the coming months, basically. And I wouldn't be shocked if you see projects allocate a little bit of the equity or the tokens or whatever the structure of the round is in order to bring in some sort of service provider that can sort of like help that project. Yeah, especially if the service is unilateral, if there's just like one service, I think DAOs can be really good at that. They can excel at it because they can just like focus on one task and they, they don't have to face similar coordination problem, which can happen with complex uh, issues and complex tasks and proposals within DAO. So I can imagine, yeah, hypothetically that can, that can work. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the complexity is actually within the DAO or the guild. So like a new project comes in, they need some sort of marketing campaign, like specifically which member is doing that, specifically how is that member getting compensated? Like those I think are the tricky issues uh, to sort out, but uh, we just have to get started. You know, that's how we kind of do everything is test and prod, right? Like let's get started. Let's take some projects. Let's see Let's test out some different compensation schemes and then iterate from there and improve. And then these things just get more and more powerful. Absolutely, Steve. Uh, so before we conclude, like I, I typically do exercise where I ask a fun or a crazy question uh, for the guests. So if there was a X to an application, uh, what would like what would be most likely one that you'll use or perhaps would invest in? In fact, not even invest in, most probably use. So uh, that is a fun one. What, what, X, what X to earn platform would be most compelling? So, I mean, I think I will actually give you one that we've invested in because I would say that like it's fascinating when you can take behaviors that people want to do better or, um, or more of or something and then find a way to also financially incentivize those things. So I think this is like what contributed to the rise of Steppen right? Like everybody wants to exercise more. All of a sudden they made it fun. They gamified it. They put these incentives around it. And then you saw Stepan sort of like grow very, very quickly. So an investment we just did recently, like within the last month or two is a project called Sleepagachi. Uh, everybody wants to sleep better, right? Like I've been very, I've slept like crap my whole life, right? So like whether it was like audit season when I was a CFO or like grad school was a nightmare for sleep. And then I had young kids and like, obviously you don't get any sleep then. I've kind of like never, I, I think I've been sleep deprived like virtually my entire life. So like the last couple of years, 
you know, there's increasing evidence that like, this is when your brain cleans itself and like, whatever, like sleep is, is really important. And so I have tried to make it like a concerted effort. You can see, like, I've got the, the whoop, uh, thing here, which is sort of like provides you analytics on sleep and all of this type of stuff. And so the fascinating thing about sleep Agachi is like, they're taking this behavior that's well documented. Everybody wants to sleep better. More and more people have some sort of tracking device, whether it's Apple health on their phone uh, you know, a Fitbit, a Whoop, Eight Sleep, like there's all these different devices uh, that are kind of becoming their own massive industry. And then they're coupling that with like exhibited behaviors that we learned from Tamagotchi, that people love collecting things, curating them, you know, like, so you get to, so as you sleep, you earn points, right? And, and it'll be able to connect eventually to like Whoop and all of the different devices. It'll input this data you'll sort of like earn this little token. You'll be able to use that to do kind of like a Tamagotchi type of exercise where you get a room, you're going to be able to decorate it. You're going to be able to flex it. It's, it's pretty fun. Uh, also very early. Um, but like, I would say that's the one I've been engaging with recently. So um, that's my X to earn. Great. Great. Have you, have you come across any, any X to earn with regards to podcasts, like maybe podcast to earn? Maybe I should use that. Yeah, man. I think, uh, I mean, podcast to earn is like been a thing for a long time, right? Through advertisers. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of a platform, I mean, what would be interesting is listen to earn, right? Like it's somehow if you could reward like the listeners uh, in some way, that I think is sort of like the fascinating model. But um, yeah, we'll see. I, no, nothing comes to mind right away. Yeah, and then we can sell, sell the, the recording of the podcast as NFTs and fractionalize it and create social tokens. Yeah, things can get crazy. <laughs> That's right. Steve, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. It was absolute pleasure. I had a blast and I also learned a lot. So thank you again for joining. Terrific. It was fun. All right, we'll talk soon. Take care. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.